This week, we get to have an epic conversation with the incredible Holly Ransom. Holly is a globally renowned content curator, speaker, and interviewer with the belief that if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. Named one of Australia's 100 most influential women by the Australian Financial Review, she's delivered a peace charter to the Dalai Lama, was Sir Richard Branson's nominee for Wired Magazine's Smart List of Future Game Changers to Watch, and was awarded the US Embassy's Eleanor Roosevelt Award. Holly has interviewed the likes of Barack Obama, Malcolm Gladwell, Richard Branson, Billie Jean King, Condoleezza Rice, Michelle Obama, the Honourable Julia Gillard, Nobel Prize winner Muhammad Yunus, and the world's first humanoid robot, Sophia. Holly is a passionate advocate for diversity and inclusion. She chairs Pride Cup Australia and is also the author of The Leading Edge, where she's currently launching an epic community challenge to empower more people to step up and be the change they want to see in the world. This was a beautiful and at times confronting conversation. As you'll hear, we discussed some diverse and weighty topics like Holly's journey with depression, the importance of vulnerability in leadership and high performance, as well as asking each other some deep questions about our own lived experience as a woman and a man. Now, due to the nature of this chat, I do want to give you a trigger warning that we cover some topics that are around depression and violence against women. If anything comes up, please listen to your body and do what you need for yourself. We'll also be sure to include some resources in the show notes for you. Holly really is a terrific leader, but most importantly, as I'm sure you'll hear, she's incredibly kind and thoughtful. I have a deep respect for Holly and I think you will too after this. Hope you enjoy. We've done it. Uh, Holly. (laughs) Finally here. (laughs) We have done it. Um, I was thinking as I was driving here, I was like, wow, we've actually known each other for quite a while. Like Ages. Ages. Yeah. But haven't spent a heap of time together. And this will probably be the most time consistently one-on-one. True. So I'm really excited to spend however long we have together. Um, And I'm someone who's kind of at one point been alongside you in the career at Foundation for Young Australians, but then has also sat and just watched and supported in awe at the same time. So it's been really special to witness um, really the journey. And I know from the outside it might look glossy and clean and pretty, but I have no doubt an incredible amount of hard work, resilience uh, and genuine perseverance has gone into everything that you've done. And I'm excited today just to kind of meet the person behind (laughs) the achievements and the success. That's very kind of you to say. I feel very similarly about watching Man Cave and stuff and everything that you've done. You're right. We were sort of in in parallel for a period and now we sort of duck in and out and certainly from afar, always cheering and supporting everything that you're doing, but we don't get the chance to spend quality time together very often. So this is a real treat. I think that's an interesting thing about leadership or those who are wanting to, you know, go forward, create something, you know, be on the front line of whether it's shifting culture or reimagining how business is done or literally just being an entrepreneur trying to run your business is sometimes there is this sacrifice of community, mm-hmm. which I wish wasn't the case, but it's, it's almost the high performer's dilemma. Truly. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? There's probably a couple of different dimensions to that one is it can feel lonely so it can find hard or harder or quite often I would say like a theme that and I would resonate with this but I I feel I hear it from people who are working in leadership or in change or whatever way they might want to characterize their work that it can often come later in life that you find your tribe or your community because it it typically you know that stuff uh, you might not grow up in a community a household or whatever that that speaks the same language is interested in the same sort of stuff and I think the other thing you're right is when 
life is moving at a pace or there's, you know, you and I have both lived out of suitcases for a very long time too. It can be hard to feel connected in the way that we would traditionally define a community. And Mm. so the way that you've got to both think about it and seek to connect into it looks different to the default nature often people build community with, which is that idea of, you know, I turn up next to someone in the school locker room every day and so we're friends and we've got community that way or I'm physically in the office with someone and so we've got community that way. It has to be so much more intentional and deliberate and it often has to take a different rhythm to what typically community might look like. I agree completely. It's this shift from the communities that we've inherited by nature of our upbringing versus how are we curating those that we want to spend our time around that pull us up, that challenge us. But it's also, I think, an interesting thing around building adult friendships. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's like, I really like this person. Can I ask them on a friend date? Yeah, I love friend dates. And, and you know, it's funny. One of the first things that we met at was a group that the wonderful Jan Owen mm. built at FYA, which was to give young leaders like us time. I think Jan called it time in, right? Yeah. Where she would bring us together for a weekend and we'd get the opportunity to be exposed to some really interesting thinkers. And I vividly remember one weekend where we had Noni Hazelhurst, like who we grew up watching on Play School, right, come in and deliver one of those type of talks where you could just hear a pin drop in the room. She was spellbinding as she is. She's got this incredible presence. And I remember that she opened with this really interesting line um, that said, "If if we want to see change, then we need to empower women and heal the broken hearts of men. Mm. And that always stuck with me both for, I'd never heard it phrased that way. And so it was one of those moments where it's like, whew, you got to sit with that. There's there's something in that. Mm. But also for the conversation it prompted afterwards. Yeah. Because I remember going and, and we, we went out afterwards and um, guys like yourself were talking about how you'd intentionally built male friendships where it was safe and, in fact, you actively encouraged, hey, how are you feeling? Be real. How are your relationships going? Like let's talk about stuff which – on the whole, as part of female friendships, is really commonplace. Mm. That That's territory we feel very comfortable in and is pretty normal. Again, mm. we're generalising here, right? But what was interesting on the flip side was the conversation opened up amongst women around we do not talk about what we earn. We do not talk about ambition. We mm. don't talk about goals and career and things that are deemed to be um, – at the uncomfortable end of female friendships, right? Where that's not territory yeah. that you venture into. And so it's interesting when you were saying kind of friend date, uh, it takes me back to that conversation and, and the dynamics. And, and it's an imperfect binary, right? We shouldn't be in a gender binary yes. like that anyway. But it was just an interesting moment for reflecting on, uh, you know, the, the dynamics of friendships and, and what we feel comfortable sitting in conversation with others with and what we need to be really intentional Uh, and deliberate about creating safe space for because it's not going to happen by default. Absolutely agree. And if we just zoom out and look at the cultural narrative right now, I would say there is this big push of empowering women and what we're starting to see. And of course, still a long way to go there. There's, and that's its own conversation. But what we're starting to see is um, men looking to heal themselves. And of course, even the language heal is a bit buzzwordy for certain people, but sure. whether it's take agency over their own well-being, mental health or resilience levels. But what we're starting to see, I think the narrative is popping out a little bit harder at the moment is around what does that actually mean around healing their broken hearts? Mm. And it, it almost sounds this like poet, poetically romantic 
thing. But if I look at it, really for me, that's intergenerational trauma. Mm. And that is, you know, whether it's a post-World War society that's rebuilt itself based off effectively status. So come back in the Mad Men era, you know, and, and, you know, uh, the model of masculinity being around conquests, you know, control, um, status and significance mm. versus what's, you know, of course those things have a time and a place, but also what's what's the bedrock of that? It's actually love, service, trust, community. But what we're starting to see now, and you only need to look at the male mental health rates where, yeah, it's you know, alarming. It's, it's significantly alarming. Like over 80 men a day call the emergency health line. Mm. We know that um, suicide is the leading cause of death for young people men as well as men under the age of 44 so the leading cause of death not overdosing on drugs not drink driving it's actually themselves but then the data that's associated to that is those who are experiencing mental illness is very correlated to the family violence rates Mm -hmm. that we're seeing as well so it's this weird paradox with men that i find that um it's like it seems almost counterintuitive that in order and this i should premise this this is my belief um Mm -hmm. in order to create a more equal world we also it's not just about focusing on empowering women. We also need to support and invest in men. Totally. Which is such a weird thing because I know I'd be curious your perspective on this. As I've watched like the arc of the feminist movement and I think maybe we're up to like the fourth wave at the moment is for like when I grew up, it was kind of like, fuck off, men, get out of the way. You've had it for long enough. But what I'm witnessing now is starting to see there is an invitation for good men to join the ranks and the table and come forward and yeah, I'd just be curious, has, is that something that you've seen or how do you reflect on what, what I just kind of painted there? Yeah, and I'd be interested if I can before we do that too. You know, with, with Man Cave, when you open up those conversations, you know, when it comes to healing broken hearts, what do you find comes out? Like, you know, because part of it, you know, I remember I've been very personally impacted by the work of Brene Brown. Mm. And one of the things I remember finding really interesting about reading about her work around vulnerability is that, again, it's it's gendered. Um, and so when you look at things that women feel vulnerable about versus what men feel vulnerable yeah. about, they're really different. Um, and when it comes to women, you know, typically you'd see things like they feel very uncomfortable about uh, often every anything to do with motherhood, I think was her number one from recollection. And number two was to do with like appearance. Um, and with men, it was very much to do with like capability and, and this, uh, you know, work and kind of all of that side of things. And one of the things she pointed out was we we have reached this period, to your point, where there's sort of an invitation for men to be vulnerable, but then we're often really uncomfortable when they actually are. Yeah. So we think it's okay and we think this is really good and we want you to tell, tell us how you're feeling and be open and be vulnerable, but then we really don't know what to do. And that's often quite challenging because men go, hold on, have I been set up here? Well, yeah. this is my experience of some of the good men in my life, right? Mm. Going, well, hold on, I thought I was doing the right thing here, but there's still this kind of disconnect between what I expect of you know, a man or a strong man or whatever it might be, and then this disconnect in how we allow them to be vulnerable versus what we allow women to do. I don't know. It's just something I'd be intrigued given I, your yeah, yeah. I, sample we study. We could do the you know? whole episode on unpacking this and let's just start where we begin. But I think what you're referring to is in Daring Greatly. From there's memory, a, yeah. Yeah, there's a chapter in there because I remember look, reading that back in the day and I was like, hmm. I, that resonates at a cellular level with me because it's I find it's this confusing narrative of you know as my lived experience as a dude where you know I grew up and to survive my social structure 
I was like, be the most alpha and yeah. bully others before I get bullied. Yeah, and wow. like, that's just what it was. Yeah. And it took a lot of, you know, time by myself, a lot of loneliness, a lot of reflecting to actually question the script of masculinity that I've inherited, that I was policed in, but also policed others by, whether it's by banter, whether it's by just, you know, trying to pretend I'm an alpha or whatever that means. And, and can I just ask, do, do you mean when you say that, that kind of that you you ended up with loneliness as an outcome of behaving that way and that forced the reflection? I think twofold. There's, it's a yes and. Yeah, so okay. I think what I recognised that it was largely a big performance. Mm. And again, it's this, if we think about high schools are just a crazy place generally, but oh, yeah. it, it it's really about hierarchies and yep. social status and each of us is now you know teenage developmental years discern what's the safest way for me to move through this hierarchy mm-hmm. some people are more extroverted some people go inwards some find sports some find creativity some find study some people struggle to find anything yep. and um inside of that you know for me there was definitely this fear that I was like shit I'm so far down a rabbit hole here that I don't know how to get out mm. and my get out of jail free card was an injury I had which is a broken leg yeah. which is a broken leg and it actually kind of just reset some things for me it wasn't like things changed overnight and I was like oh things are good now it but it it shifted me like five degrees and I, I no longer could go down this route of like wanting to be a professional athlete and yeah, as I said, it would probably took about, you know, a good seven, eight years for me to really try and embody what I wanted to stand for in the world. And I completely stuffed it up many times. I was complete hypocrite many times. But it was this attempt for me to actually discover what my values were and what I wanted to create in the world. And part of that was like, you know, my some of my mates being like, bro, we know who you really are. Stop pretending. And that was, you know, an internal journey that I had to go on as well, going, shit, I feel like I'm caught in between two worlds. Because when I was in that world, mm. if I was really honest, I'm like, mm, I like, it's cool because I get to be with my mates and we have fun times. But then also there's this other side where I kind of come home and I'm like, shit, I did some things there that actually isn't really who I am, but yeah. where do I go? And now I've kind of tried to like jump this fence and create this like healthy masculine version of like, cool, what does values actually mean? How do I live that? But then I'm kind of caught. It's like my, my pants have got caught on the fence and I'm kind of hung up there for a moment going, shit, like, was this worth it? Like, is yeah, this right. actually right? Because, you know, I'm suddenly now have gone to no community. Mm. Whereas at least the community I was in, the I loved my mates and I do to this day dearly. And now I'm like, great. Who do I want to surround myself with? So it's a new community that you're building. It's new community. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what Man Cave was for me by nature. I didn't think of it as I was building a community. I just decided to go for something. And then by nature of it, it kind of attracted some just like-minded incredible people. like-minded people. Yeah. And it's been beautiful to witness, um, you know, a lot of my you know, friendships I've had for a long time start to come on that journey too. Yeah. And I think coming back to vulnerability, I think that's the interesting thing about vulnerability is when we're vulnerable first, whether in a disclosure or a share with someone or, you know, forging a new path, yeah. it gives permission for others to do the same. Totally. I think that's one of the most powerful things about vulnerability. And it was not a, a concept I grew up with. I grew up in you know, a household where we we didn't really show emotion and it was like you kind of just got on and did and you pushed through. And it was a part of a big fundamental reset for me, learning about vulnerability and, and this notion that vulnerability was actually strength. 
And uh, this most incredible thing that happens when you start to embrace living life with vulnerability, that you sort of become incapable of existing in relationships where that's not present. I find it really hard. Mm. And I don't know if you feel this way too. I find it really hard to sit in small talk. I find I actively avoid superficial relationships. I want to be in deep relationship with people. I want to know them. I want to understand them. I want it to be meaningful. Uh, And so for me, that's become something that's become, you know, a, a barometer. And it was interesting when you were talking about relationships earlier, I was reflecting on, you know, this adage that's always been something, um, I can't remember when I first heard it, I was a teenager um, and one of the the speakers, it would have been on a leadership program I was on, talked about the idea that you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time around. Now, they don't know who that you attribute that to. I also don't know how much that's actually true in mm. psychology. There's another way of saying it, the sort of like show me your friends and I'll show, me, show you who you are. Mm. And that really confronting idea, and it was certainly the confronting way that I remember it first landing for me, that sometimes I need to change who we're hanging around. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that notion of uh, the version of myself I want to be and this pull that I feel to to the norm of the group, behaviour, mindset, whatever it might be, being incongruent. And how scary that is, you know, how scary that is every time we choose to do that in the name of um, pursuing what we believe to be our truth, right? And that, that's ultimately what it is. There's a, there's a sense of our purpose, who we are, how we like to show up in the world. Um, but when that's a disconnect with who we're surrounded with at any given moment, and I feel like we get presented with these moments at every evolution point in our lives Mm. where there's a new step or there's a new challenge whether that's you know for some people listening it might have been you know shifting geographies and moving to a new city for others it's taking a new opportunity sometimes it's going oh my gosh there's some people in my world that I really need to say goodbye to because I'm never going to be able to be the best of myself if this is who I spend time with and this is what we spend time doing but it is there's sort of really scary moments so it's just it was making me think about a, a couple of those things but that when you find vulnerability in relationship, I think it's very hard to exist without it. I, I agree. And then I think vulnerability has so many levels, right? Because there's True. there's also those, um, I've heard a mate describe it as like automated authenticity. So mm. people just like tell you the thing and you're like, you're telling me the vulnerable thing, but I don't feel you. Performative vulnerability. Performative vulnerability. Yeah. And I, that, like, my best friend talks about that all yeah. the time, how that's very in vogue at the moment. And it's like, you, you know, you go see, you might see a speaker and right, you can just feel they're delivering the package that they always do. And you're like, oh, I don't feel you right now. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I'm sure we'll get to this in this conversation, but like for me, in terms of 21st century leadership, yeah. it's the embodied nature of having range, that vulnerability is not seen as weakness, but it is seen as authenticity. Mm-hmm. And that's where the connections form, as Brené Brown shares. But then also there are the moments where you need to be stoic and resilient and totally. pull your socks up and go for it. Yep. Um, the other thing I just want to bring it back to, it, it just clicked in. I'm going to paraphrase a quote, and this comes back to what you shared before around um, the broken hearts of mm-hmm. men. There's another quote, and again, I'm just going to give the general gist of it and it, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. And it's a quote I heard around that women, I'll say this, men are scared that women will laugh at them and women are scared that men will kill them. Wow. Whew. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I'd be fascinated to know who that's attributed to. I mean, I think that is... I mean, I can't speak for the male side of that, mm. but 
I can speak for the reality I know to be true of myself and I know to be true of every woman I know that we all learn how to fake a phone call when Mm. we're walking back to our car on our own after, you know, being in a night out or something like that. We all know to to have our keys in our hand. We all learn kind of mechanisms and uh, ways of behaving that make us feel safer because the world is inherently unsafe Mm. uh, for us, you know, and, and sadly the violence data around domestic violence, the reality of... Um, what we know to be all too true, you know, and, and I say this, sitting in a country where we know yeah. the reality for our women here is fundamentally better than, you know, the absolute lion's share of women in the world. Um, you know, when you when you read still about honour killings, when you read about the reality of what so many women all over the world are facing to even be able to get access to primary school education, yeah. um, the ability to not be in a, um, you know, a, a child marriage or be a child bride or any of those sorts mm. of realities, it's it's pretty hard to contend with. So I'm interested though in the piece around the male part and I'd be mm. intrigued for your take on that, this notion that laughter is that scary. Mm. You know, it's because in- I think everyone could – can sit and resonate with the idea that well, being killed is scary. Mm. So the, the notion that if you think there's a genuine threat to your very mm. existence, that that's pretty universal. Mm. But the idea of is that just to do with, you know, power over mm. um, and that notion of control and what, what we would define as a typical kind of masculine definition of what power looks like? Listen, I think we could keep going on this for a long time and I'm conscious that it's like right here is I think something that is very central to the masculine experience so um and also I just I guess frame this this is just my take on this and I'm sure there are others listening that have you know much more thoughtful responses but you know I'll just reflect my experiences growing up as a man this concept of masculine pride which I see everywhere whether it's in avoidance of our political leaders looking at climate change yeah you know to um you know the funding that we actually give to the community sector um you know the list goes on all the way to actually taking responsibility and accountability for mistakes Mm. or behaviors and i think my experience growing up you know, around in a very alpha masculine culture and then being inside of relationships, in my case, with women. Um, You know, when I've been exceptionally vulnerable with a partner, it is, for me, the scariest thing in the world because that partner represents a level of psychological safety that often I haven't found inside of my male friendships. That's so interesting. Potentially with my mother, if I'm fortunate to grow up with a mother that's present and has unconditional love, which I have been, but then just by nature inside of relationship is like that's sacred territory. Um, and I think, and this is what we see with some, you know, particularly the, the mass killings that we see in the US um, where, you know, 97% of the time it is, it is young men who are angry, uh, angry young men, young misunderstood. Men. misunderstood young men. Um, and there's a level of subtle but very loud entitlement that mm. there is, I should be getting this. I'm not getting the attention. I deserve this. Where is my, you know, recognition and reward? And it it really astounds me how um, whether the systems we have to deal with, whether it is mental illness, whether it is family violence, whether it is gender equality, how much the systems are geared around crisis management. Mm. 
So we wait till something goes wrong. We We're so bad at preventative Fix anything. the symptom. Yep. Right, because preventative is not sexy in an election campaign. Hard to prove luck, too. Exactly. It's one of the hardest. This came from a meeting today with a potential funder and, you know, they're like, great, so how are you measuring this? I'm like, here's all the data we've got. Here's the digital platform. You know, here's the longitudinal work. But I'm like, who actually knows? Because mm-hmm. I've been running, you know, father-son camps in, you know, Byron Bay where we take boys on a, you know, a four-day rider passage where the significant male in their life takes them through a whole journey, effectively welcomes them into their adulthood, which cool. we used to do for communities for thousands of years. Now it's kind of go to schoolies. Um, <laughs> but on that training, I remember I was with a guy who was like the only young guy there and I was like, dude, what are you doing here? He's like, oh man, I did this program with my dad when I was like like 15 years ago. I was like, really cool. Like, how was it? And he goes, I fucking hated it. And I was like, what? He goes, yeah, I thought it was a bunch of hippie bullshit. And I was like, oh, okay. And he goes, but it dawned on me when I was about 25, 26 that that was one of the most transformative moments of my life. Wow, to resist it so much in the moment so, but reflect that way afterwards. Might give you an insight to a teenage boy's mindset. Truth. Um, but... You know, and I think for me, I always just reflect on that as an example of like, you never know when that seed is going to sprout. Mm. And, you know, I think about all those moments, those sliding door moments or those portable portal moments throughout our years where opportunity just land or, you know, that thing we remember that person said at the time just clicks in or that role model we're exposed to actually those values now start to come through. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's the hardest thing with prevention But then back to what you were saying uh, earlier around like for men, where does this come from? Listen, I also think there's there's a lot of, listen, I think if if really there's the rejection and the humiliation there too, which Mm. is a very scary thing, which I think taps into some deep-seated evolutionary and biological um, conditioning that we have, that if we're not part of the group or if we're not safe in an intimate relationship, there is some wiring inside of us that feels like, it's going to end. Things yeah. are bad. So I think that plays as well and I'm sure we could keep going. But That's so interesting. Yeah, it's, and I, I, I wonder this because I think, you know, even my lived experience as a dude as I'm moving through this wild journey I'm on, <laughs> um, I'm like, wow, there's so many things that I've had to learn, unlearn and relearn. Amen to that. I don't think that works for everyone. Yeah. Well, yeah. What are some, I'd love to hear what are some of the things that you've had to, in, you know, when you wake up to some of the conditioning that you've grown up in? I think there's a couple, I mean, for me, as I've mentioned already, mm. one was vulnerability. So mm. that was just something that wasn't in my, uh, my family environment growing up that was doing me a disservice. Mm. You know, one of the, the reason that I went on this journey of recalibration was because, you know, like most things in life, it works till it doesn't, right? Yeah. And, you know, back nearly a decade ago now, I was diagnosed with clinical depression. Mm. And that was sort of a really surprising diagnosis because I I guess, for the want of a better description, I would have been a high-functioning depressive. (laughs) Like I remember sitting in my doctor's office the day uh, where she sort of asked me this checklist for um, all all these questions. And she said at the end, do you know what you just answered a a checklist set of questions for? And I said, no. And she said, depression. And I said, I am bawling, bawling. Mm. I could have counted on my hands how many times in my life I had cried up to that point and mm. I could not physically stop myself. And she said, um, depression. I said, but I'm Tigger. Like I, I, was a, I identified as a really happy place. It was so mm. conflicting and yeah. challenging to get my head around. And, you know, it was one of the hardest things I've ever been through. But at the same time, it is one of 
the most pivotal moments in my life because it identified for me that a whole bunch of the way that I was going about what I was doing was unsustainable. Yeah. I was not managing my energy. I was managing mm. time. Yep. I did not understand and have a healthy relationship with vulnerability. I was giving myself and my energy to people and things mm. that were not giving it back to me. Yeah. Uh, I was not mindful of mindfulness yeah. and self-nourishment and self-care. That was totally foreign concept. And mm. so I had to rebuild all these kind of mm. fundamentals that – I feel so fortunate I lent in and did the work and had the right teachers and found the right teachers for that matter because I've been able to build foundations that that fortunately haven't shaken since. And, you know, while I think you – and I'm always really mindful when I speak about a mental health experience, that's my experience and I'm very conscious not everyone has had that experience going through something like depression. But I feel very grateful that, you know, I've built foundations that feel really steadfast. Yeah. I think you've always got to evolve and yes. and change and continue to add new things to your toolkit. But, you know, that is a, a really big reset. I think the other one that often comes up when you think about it with a, with a female lens is confidence. Yeah. You know, I went into mm. a school just recently. It's so great being able to be back out in schools. And I was talking to 800 girls at a girls' school, mm. age 12 to 17, International Women's Day. And I said, girls, there's these five criteria for a job. This is a Harvard study. How many do you think the boys believe they need to meet before they will apply for a job? You know, what do you reckon? 800 girls yelled out at me. You know, one, <laughs> one zero. Yeah. Yeah, the answer is two. Yeah. Um, and then I said, girls, how many do you think we believe we need to meet before we'll apply? Mm. 800 girls yell in unison, five, six. What is interesting about it? And the answer is four. It, to begin with, the math isn't great. Right, yeah. of that reality. Yeah. You know, men are twice as likely, I guess, in that respect, to put themselves forward for opportunities. So that's a problem in and of itself. What horrifies me more is how 800 girls aged 12 to 17 know that in unison. And any time I open that conversation up with a group of women, and I'm very fortunate to work with, you know, female executives right the way through to primary school students and everything in between in the work that I do, they all know it too. Yeah. And so there's this big piece around not backing yourself, mm. not believing you're worthy, needing to um, meet twice as high a standard before you'll have a go at something. That The challenge that I think so many women battle of kind of perfectionism yeah. and it not being okay to have a go or not being okay to not get it right first go. Yeah. I, and I'm, I, I'm sure that is an experience men have too. Yeah. But the data around kind of the confidence and the perfectionism piece, I think that's a really big reset and recalibration for a lot of women. And it's one you have to keep coming back to, you know, like I'm proud of confident decisions I've made at different points throughout my journey, but it's one I have to keep being brave, yeah. keep doing that thing, yeah. keep challenging yourself um, to push yourself out there because it's not the way that we're wired to work. No, and by nature of that being in a, a male design system. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I'm sure you'll know this better than I do, but how that same psychology applies to asking for pay rises Mm -hmm. as well. And then by nature of that environment as well, if you choose to have a child and how that impacts. So you see all these compounding factors that result effectively in the world we're living in right now. Um, I'd like to, if you feel comfortable with this, just go back a little bit to when you mentioned depression. So some people... Um, to your point, will have a lived experience of depression. Some people won't. Um, yeah, again, if you feel comfortable to do this, what was what was it like to to like live that? And how did you have to balance? Because I still feel what ten years ago there was still probably a lot of stigma 
Definitely. around. Yeah. yeah. And how, what was it like and how did you navigate that? Yeah, and, and I will give the best answer I can because, and some people listening who've been through a lived experience might resonate with this, um, probably the, the most obvious thing I can say about it is it's a fog. Like mm. I can't remember much of that period at all. I can remember things when I'm prompted, wow. but the quality of my memory for that period is really low. Um, it was, it, yeah, foggy would be the best description of how that felt. I think, um, you know, everyone's got their own journey with this sort of stuff in terms of how they work through it. But, you know, for me, there was an awareness that it it needed a raft of different um, yeah. parts of an approach. I needed to uh, get help in the immediate to feel better. I had great doctors who were kind of very good at how they helped me navigate that period. And that was really important. But I also knew that there was a reason I'd gotten there. And yeah. so it was a want to understand how did I get here and how do I make sure I never get here again? It's a really good Because thing. those two things are, are different. There's yeah. an overlap, right? But there's, a, there's a, a kind of distinction to both of those. And so it was the want to go away and go, okay, I need to find the right people to talk to mm. who can help me work my way through this, piece it together, have some kind of objective lens on it. Yeah. Um, I, need, I need recommendations of resources that I should be reading. And also I need to go away. I remember that year um, I, I was in Portugal for a rotary conference. I was, I was staying at some hostel and I can't remember how long I was in Portugal for, but I swear I slept for a week. Mm. I did almost nothing other than sleep and maybe get out of bed once a day and walk to get a coffee and then go back to bed or sit somewhere in the sun and just soak it in. Like the need to kind of fundamentally do what you need to do to get well to begin yes. with. And one of the things I say, and, you know, I've, I've had a few friends and colleagues over the journey who've gone through a similar experience is you can never speak to what someone else's lived experience of a mental health challenge will be like. But the thing I always advise is you need to do what you need to do to get well first. And to the best of your ability, try to be um, both – uh, selfish in how you do that. Like yeah. you need to strip things out that are taking energy from you. You need to be kind to yourself in what you're asking yourself to do. So for a period of time, you need to be quite ruthless about how you manage your own energy and how you protect and look after yourself. And then I think the other piece I would say to people is try not to make any major and important decisions. Mm. You're not in a good and clear headspace. Yeah. So you can you could make all manner, and I'm, I'm sure I could have made all manner of really diabolical decision because I was certainly not in a place where I was thinking positively about myself or my ability or the state of the world or any of that sort of stuff. So they're probably just two things I think were really important. I'm very lucky. I had, um, I can remember the, the, the day I fell into the depression. I can remember the day that I came out and it was wow. just under a year and it was, it was felt that stark. Like wow. I can tell you about the day I lost control. I was at work couldn't stop crying in the bathroom, like literally a colleague sort of almost distracted colleagues so I could get out of the building without sort of, you know, having a meltdown in front of everyone. And I can remember it was probably 10 months on the day where I felt like the sun was shining again. So it was mm. that kind of stark from my standpoint. And I also know I'm very fortunate to have, you know, recovered that quickly, but that's sort of what I remember and they're some of the things that were sort of really important and then it also changed my relationship with things like I'm a big believer in psychologists mm. and or finding whoever you need to to yeah. talk to but professional help I yeah. wish we had more of a conversation I know you've got friends in America too that's a lot more comfortable a conversation to your point around stigma still yeah. to this day I feel yeah. like it's a thing to talk about that yeah. uh, and that was really important it remains really important I review it as a 
gym membership for my brain. It's something that I don't do, um, you know, every week, but I do make a really important point of periodically doing because it helps me not like stave off, you know, um, a mental illness, you know, to the want of a better word. I think some of the language used around this sort of stuff is really pro- problematic, but it helps me stay mentally fit and well. Yeah. And that's the way I wish we were having more of a conversation around mental health too is, you know, there's a spectrum and the reality is, and I think we, we see it in all the data, you know, millennials and Gen Zs are both more comfortable talking about this sort of stuff, but also there's a reality of presenting with a lot of these challenges much earlier in life too. And so the need to be making sure it's okay to talk about this and we're thinking about what support structures look like and different access to services and you name it, I just think is, is critical. And we're a long way off the system supporting that type of approach. First of all, I just want to say thank you for just being so real about all that Um, because I, hand in my heart, know how many people that will help and I'm just so grateful that you're here sitting in front of me and I can feel the energy right now. Mm -hmm. It is palpable. Um, But just the role model you are. So I just want to say, yeah, I really, really do mean that Um, because it's, it is without doubt one of the most excruciating life experiences. Yeah. And when you don't want to get out of bed or you can't physically get out of bed. And you can't. And when you haven't been role modelled how to deal with such adversity that's not external adversity, it's internal. That's a good point. And, you know, who's the community around me? How do I talk about this? How is this not normalised? And, yeah, I just think it's just a real credit like just you've you've earned your wellness and i i also think what i really love what you said is get well first yeah you know yes if you choose to go down the medication route or change some things yes but also this is your own life that you um, have a responsibility for and now let's look at the clues that led up to this point in time totally and let's have a look what was what worked and what didn't and what needs to change going forward Totally. And, and, you know, you just made me think of a couple of other things. You know, I don't think we talk about the role of diet and exercise yeah. in mental health enough by any stretch of the imagination. They're absolutely critical and crucial. And that can be one of the first places where your curiosity starts. Like, am I moving often? And am I getting my heart rate up at a fundamental biochemical level? We know that makes a difference. If I'm putting junk in me, unsurprisingly, I'll probably feel like junk. Um, and then to your point around people around me, like that was one of the more confronting parts of the whole experience. Mm. There were some people that left my life at that moment that if you had asked me six months earlier, I never, ever, ever would have told you anything other than those people are in my corner for life. Mm. It surprised me both in terms of who was there for me and some people that, you know, will be on my Christmas card list, list and my kind of in my corner forevermore and are people that, I will just never forget how they were there for me in that mm. moment. It reminds me of that quote, like people might forget, you know, what you said or how you said it, but you'll, they'll never forget how you made them feel. There are some people that I just could not be more indebted to for how they were for me in that moment. And then there's some people that um, it, it really, it almost compounded the hurt yes. by them being absent, them needing me to be in their role performing a certain identity. Yeah. Um, for them to feel okay and so them feeling lost at sea when I was lost at sea and, and that being challenging because that notion of I shouldn't have to be anything other than me yes for the other for, and that is a big life lesson to get in your 20s right to go wow if people need me to be something for them um, you know that's inherently problematic and I probably need to think about how 
um, how I get clearer on who's in my life for the right reasons and in the right way. Yeah. And uh, what are in my journey, particularly just the rabbit holes we've been in with psychology is often it's people's childhood trauma playing out at, yeah. at an adult level. And so X person, you know, you played a role in their narrative of the the world they wanted to construct for their own lived experience. And Holly's now not playing that role. She's now, she either plays that role, or she's disposable. And it's not about that unconditional love and service. And, you know, there's the saying, which I'm sure we both know, but like crisis reveals character. Mm. And, it, and, it, and that doesn't just have to be, you know, environmental crisis and leadership. It's in, interpersonal too. Totally. And, and really finding who are the people, you know, coming back to what you shared earlier, who are those five people that, you know, we have around us? And yep. if we don't have those five, what can we do to start building that community? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I just think that's such an important reflection and it's a challenging reflection sometimes we don't always meet and this is the thing about quotes like that you know they're easy to put on the wall somewhere and they're easy to resonate with and feel good about when we're in a good place yes but sometimes when we actually need the most and I think oftentimes the way some of these quotes have met me and the reason they've stuck with me and the reason I repeat them even though sometimes people could listen to them and hear like oh maybe that's a little bit cliche or something like that is because they actually met me when they felt deeply uncomfortable Mm. and I always think there's something in something that lands with you like that and you go oh oh I really don't want to hear that but I have to hear that you know there's something in that idea of the five people okay maybe that's because if I'm honest they aren't the five people that I probably should be spending the most time around or, you know, that notion of vulnerability being strength, oh, that sits really uncomfortably because vulnerability feels terrifying and it feels weak. And so what am I going to do about that and why is that feeling that way? So I often think some of these quotes that jar with you or these ideas that jar with you are actually the ones that you most need to sit with. And similarly, like Lane Beachley has been a great mentor of mine for a really long time. She often says, you know, the advice that you give is often the advice you need to hear yourself. And this is also this curiosity of sort of the way that we show up for friends and what we find ourselves telling other people, often holding a mirror up to us in terms of what we need to hear for ourselves. Completely agree. And it's the embodiment and uh, this is what I, I – it's so rare in my experience to be in the presence of leaders who embody their values. Yeah. Um, as well as my journey, you know, leading two organisations is I'm like, oh, if I'm just saying the right things and I'm convincing myself with this convenient narrative that this is the way forward but I'm not actually embodying this, it's a crock of shit. <laughs> Yeah, And people will feel it. And it might, you know, be convincing for a period of time. But, you know, if I'm just from the nature of our work, if I'm not embodying emotional well-being or, you know, this healthy masculine identity, and that doesn't mean perfection. No. Then it means this, honest imperfection, honest, I would have thought. There you go. And, and, you know, even inside my relationship this week, I've had to, you know, step into some, some of like previous hunters, 17-year-old, 18-year-old hunters, teenage boy behaviour yeah. that I've had to have a really honest, raw conversation which parts of me hated. Mm. And, um, you know, this is I'm my partner, I'm dating. I dated from like 17 to 20, had a 10-year break. Oh, wow. And we're back on for 2.0. But, um, you know, there was just a lot of behaviour back then that was just not aligned to my values or respectful to her. And we're now in to build the base plate of, you know, trust and love inside of our relationship. It's like, let's lean into that. And part of that has been the scariest thing in the world for part of me. But 
if I'm actually want to live a life that is honest and truthful to my values, that's an important thing to do. Totally. Oh, my body is reacting. Oh, no, it's it funny, now. isn't it? You actually feel like it, it, you know, it does. It rises up. It's like you, I always find it's interesting how it's always the heart rate going faster or your cheeks get flushed or whatever. It's visceral. Yeah. This sort of stuff. And, and I think, you know, again, it's that courage. One of my I'm, – I'm passionate about this topic around fear and because mm. one of the quotes that really landed for me a few years ago was this idea it's the things that we're afraid of that we most need to do. And so um, my best friend and I, uh, I feel like we've all got that one friend who's the only person who will say yes when we tell them we've got an idea. And my best friend Charlie and I did a whole year of fear where we put that kind of whole quote to the test. And, you know, the reason it sort of resonates for me is because one of my biggest reflections on that year was if both I think about how I started the year, it was sort of notionally, okay, we're going to hurdle outside our comfort zone all year. It's going to be like this crazy year of challenges and pushing the boundaries and when we finally got brave enough to talk to people about this year of fear, that was exactly how the questions went. How on earth do you have enough stuff you're afraid of? There's only so many times you can jump out of a plane or swim with sharks or be immersed in spiders and or whatever it is that people, when you say the word fear, think. And one of the most powerful lessons for me of that year was we've actually desensitised to the way fear shows up day to day. Like that stuff is where Hollywood has taken fear for us. You know, it's these are kind of extreme scenarios that don't actually interact with our day-to-day experience. It's unlikely in doing your job. It's unlikely in going to school on a day-to-day basis. You're worried about sharks or spiders or snakes, you know, um, at a fundamental level. It's actually resensitizing to exactly what you just experienced then, mm. which is, oh, there's a truth I've got to lean into or there is a question I've got to ask or there's a conversation I've got to have and – I can feel if I'm in tune with myself, my heart's beating faster. I'm getting a little bit flustered. I'm I'm noticing that, you know, I'm feeling warmer in my face or whatever it might be. Oh, this is probably a sign. This is one of those things I'm afraid of that I probably need to do. And so for me, it became this really interesting year of learning to say no to things, of being prepared to lean into vulnerability with people that I care deeply about. And I think it's often in our most... Uh, important relationships that it's scariest to be vulnerable some of the time because we're most afraid of what will happen if I'm fully seen, right? Uh, It became a year of learning how to be a beginner. Like I – and I'm sure you've experienced this with your own founder journey, right? I started my business that year and so I'd gone from a world where I felt really familiar and I knew how to do what I'd done, you know, year after year, month after month to, oh, my God, how do I do that? I don't know. Mm. And I've got to admit I don't know. I've got to go ask people for help. I've got to ask people I kind of don't want to lose face in front of for help Mm. Uh, and getting comfortable with that whole journey. And so I think that's a really interesting kind of concept, a way of thinking about fear that's different to the way I feel like the social narrative has run with it, which is a really extreme and performative version of fear versus a very honest, real, um, in some ways mundane, like, but that's the difference between who we are right now and who we might want to be tomorrow is actually am I courageous enough to lean into those parts of me that are scary and where I feel tension and resistance in myself from being able to peel back another layer or take another step. I love that so much. And what I think is interesting is there is so much incentive in the world right now to not do that. 100%. There are so many pleasure seeking dopamine releasing serotonin giving desensitizing uh tools all around us and a pretty big one being built 
at present with the metaverse Mm -hmm. that effectively is so convincing to our kind of evolutionary conditioning that we pull ourselves out of the the discomfort of life. And that is one thing amongst a few other things that we are guaranteed in this lifetime is to feel extreme levels of discomfort and it's how do we show up to deal with that that shapes our character. Can I ask you about this? Because this is something I find really interesting talking about with millennials is one of the things I do a lot of work in the intergenerational space, Mm. as as you know, and one of the things that comes up as a a tension point with older generations with our generation is that uh, we need continuous um, encouragement, reinforcement, positivity. And I always find it really interesting. I'm a big believer in seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. And when I look at our generation, one of the things, no generation's created in a vacuum. And one of the the kind of things that our generation grew up with was this, everyone got a medal for running in a race. Everyone got to be a school captain. Everyone got rewarded. And so one of the things that I find really interesting about this conversation in the context of the millennial generation is we didn't have resilience incrementally built into us. We had everything from generic playgrounds where you didn't fall over and scrape your knee through to kind of these uh, structures where nobody ever missed out or everyone got continuously affirmed. And then all of a sudden we got out into the real world where there wasn't a reality of everyone having the opportunity or the choices that they want or being able to get the outcomes they wanted. And it felt like it went from zero to 180 for a lot of people. Mm. And I think that's a a really massive challenge that, you know, to your point around – kind of that that conditioning and that notion of life is going to be uncomfortable. Uh, You know, I would argue one of the most important things we can be doing right now from a habit standpoint is getting comfortable being uncomfortable. That's why I encourage people, whatever it looks like, it's it's less about the activity itself that you're doing. It's more about the discipline that you're building uh, and the story that you're then able to tell yourself afterwards. I can do hard things. This will pass. Um, I can find a way. And so that confidence that builds because inevitably around the corner there'll be another moment of discomfort. And so you build this capability of going, I can do this. I've got this. I back myself in these situations of unknown or uncertainty or where the rug just felt like it got pulled out from under me. But I I don't know if if you'd agree, but my observation would be we sort of generationally didn't get set up for a world of uncertainty and discomfort many ways bless them because again it always comes with the best of intentions right Mm. we had a generation of parents who sought to protect us from a lot of hardship they endured themselves and so the reality is there's always an externality to to forces at work the the negative externality of some of that is from a resilience standpoint we've got an underdeveloped muscle oh completely there's a lot of different threads in there i think two things to begin with is something that i've learned is like and i kind of remember where I picked this up, but it's like create your own challenges or someone else's will come get you. <laughs> I like and I really like that. Yeah, and yeah. I remember when I kind of got that base plate, I was like, all right. And probably about when I was like 25, I made a commitment to myself to invest in a life-changing off-brand experience every year. Cool. So I'm like, what's something that off-brand. Hunter would never do? All right. And what sort of stuff? Uh, for me, a big part of my journey is reclaiming back my creativity just because cool. growing up as a footy jock, that was just not in the the spectrum of what I did. And so, you know, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I did a stand-up comedy course at NIDA Love. and shat myself the whole it's time. It's so scary. 
Oh, and then, you know, singing lessons was another thing, you know. and Same teacher. There you go. That's right. Yeah, that that's is, one of oh, our connections. There we go. Yep. Shout out Marianne. Marianne yeah. for the win. <laughs> oh, so good. So, Love her work. Yeah. That is, again, like just, again, so, just rattled me to my core. Whereas some people would be like, dude, come on. But just oh, for me. So vulnerable and exposed. Oh. I totally agree. A completely transformative thing to do. Yeah, so I think there's that. And then there's a few like overseas adventures that I've just gone, oh, I'm going to go do. So that has been something which I've just built in that I'll like do, try and do every single year. Um, I think coming back to your point around the gener- like the intergenerational nuances and um, yeah, I, listen, I, I think the other thing that's not often discussed as well is that, you know, our parents' generation were like at this end of the world war rebuilding stage particularly in white western australia mm-hmm. which was you know often if you chose to do university that was paid for yeah it was free the economy yeah. in australia particularly in the u.s was growing so the quality of life increased and um this is not to say that our parents didn't have a tough time but it was just like that was their conditioning yep and so but what i also you know, and I obviously wasn't there, but more I've listened is that their parents went through tough times and then conditioned them in a way where they were like, I'm going to give my kid the upbringing that I didn't have. Completely. And what's interesting, running quite a bit of, um, you know, father-son programs or boy mentor programs is a lot of their fa- a lot of the fathers or significant male role models will tell their boys, I love you, I love you, I love you, because they never got told that. It's actually mm. quite common, which, you know, is great. And the boy's like, yeah, I get it. You're like, you love me, great. But what actually they really want to hear and what will land is that their parents are proud of them. Interesting. And it's just interesting just to observe that. And and I think, you know, if you look at like, you know, countless conversations I've had with like, you know, me and my dad never said I love you, you know, or we didn't hug each other, we shook hands. Then you see this over-engineering for the next generation to try and provide this to- And that's it. We're all a reflection of our that's kind right. of, a, you, you know, know? A, a, an interpretation of what we felt like we got and what we felt like we lacked, right? Exactly. And then the way that that turns up in terms of what we pay forward. That's it. And, and so to, to kind of bottom it out, a big belief of mine in my own journey, whether it's around, you know, discovering more about my privilege, my whiteness, just being a dude moving through the world, trying to be better at times, is it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. Mm. So I'm born into this system. You know, I haven't had as many chances to develop a level of resilience because, you know, there's been minimal world traumas except for the last few years that I can really count on my hand that's affected me. Truly, our generation have been very blessed. Very blessed. And that probably statistically won't always be the case. So what am I going to do about it? What am I doing about my own resilience? What am I doing about my own healing practice? How am I training myself to be ready for a very uncertain and increasingly volatile world? Yep. And I think that's what I come back to. So my personal practice of, of my own well-being are very much centered on that, is actually going back, doing as much. And it's not like, I saw this great meme this week, it was like competitive healing. And it was like this guy eating oh, all God. the hot dogs at like the hot dog eating contest. And it was like plant medicine, um, oh, acceptance, com- commitment therapy, you know, like it's the whole thing. It's very funny. But it is something that I do take really seriously is like how do I equip myself for a world that is increasingly uncertain but the best part about it is I actually feel better about myself by doing these practices totally and I'm also a better leader because I'm more empathetic I understand people better and I'm more values driven but also your point earlier around 
you know, the difference between what we say and what we do, you're also role modeling yes. better, you know, because that notion of part of what I think our teams often need is permission. And it's, you don't give permission by what you say, you give permission by what you do and what you walk past, right? So it's both kind of what we show is okay. And then in the context of what we don't pull up and stop and say, actually, that's not either. So I think that's a really important part of what you said there. And I also like the idea that it's, you know, responsibility slash choice, right? Mm. You know, that that really practical piece around I can make a different choice today. Yeah. That is within my grasp. I can choose to devote more time to mindfulness. I can choose to, you know, engage differently in this interaction. I can choose to be more, more thoughtful about disrupting myself and my routine or whatever it might be. It makes it, I think, a lot more accessible than sometimes the way these conversations are had where it feels, I don't know, like I feel like it perpetuates this, quest for a silver bullet solution or this magical new thing that we can wrap a fancy name on and it's going to solve everything. And, you know, I'm passionate about this notion that in that that false mindset we overlook the fundamental things we repeatedly do, those small kind of day-to-day habits that are actually the determination between, you know, what we are, what we do, you know, what we think, uh, what becomes our reality, all those sorts sorts of things. So that need to kind of, at a fundamental level, go, I can make small choices today that have the ability to profoundly compound in my life for the mm. better. Let me seize that choice. It needs to be no more complicated than that. That is enough. Um, there's so much power in that. I love that. And for me, the other big thing and what you're talking about is the power of language. So mm. I can do this. But also I love the concept of I get to do this. Yeah. You know, it's like, and that flips the the psychology of like, I can't just do it, but I, what a honour. You know, how about my gratitude that I get to do this? I get to take, retake control of my life until the next curveball comes. Totally. And I think that, you know, I have this belief that consciousness is alive and around us and, you know, whether you believe in karma or what, whatever, it's like, for me, it's like we're always interacting with the world, even from our thoughts, our inner dialogue, our outward dialogue. And the more that we can kind of start to embody this healthy, really discussion, yeah. whether it's with ourselves or others, it actually brings more healthy discussion and healthy opportunities and just a healthier way of life, which I just wish I was told. Yeah. <laughs> well, totally. And you're making me think the same thing about, you know, gratitude, you know, in mm. the sense of that practice of moving from obligation to, to gratitude and how different the mindset, the energy, the emotion that's associated with those two things is. Even the body language that we think about yeah. in in those two things. Like you can envisage what someone who feels obligated to do something looks like doing a task and what someone who feels grateful to be doing something looks like when they're doing the same thing. And I think that's one of the, you know, profoundly powerful kind of universal truths. It's, it's impossible to sit in a state of a negative emotion while you are being grateful, while mm. you're practising gratitude. So again, that choice to go there's a way I can be grateful about this. Even about something I genuinely have an obligation to go and do, I can reframe it for myself yeah. as this is, I feel very fortunate. Aren't, aren't I grateful to have the opportunity to, um, 
you know, be a part of something bigger than myself? Aren't I grateful for the opportunity to be alive today? Aren't I grateful for the opportunity to be outside moving through this world in such a glorious city? Mm. What, whatever it might mm. be that is the way that we can reframe what might feel like a mundane obligation or a frustrating chore or something that we'd really prefer not to be doing. Um, and, you know, that might sound like I'm diminishing it to just being useful for those tasks. I don't think it is. I think it's a, a, you know, I think, again, like anything, it's something that can be deployed to different effect right across the spectrum of our lives. But that whole notion of I'm going to start and finish the day in gratitude in those moments where I feel myself slipping out, it's a bit like mindfulness. I don't know about you, but I still have a bit of a battle with myself with meditation. I'm, I'm certainly very good at kind of seeing my thoughts wander and having to work on that discipline of continuing to come back to the present. And I think that's what it's like with that sort of stuff. It's when I see myself slipping out of gratitude, how do I re-inject the self-talk? How do I ground myself again? How do I reframe quite intentionally? And the power of building that muscle in the way that that can help circuit break what can otherwise be, you know, an extension of negativity or um, a – yeah, a feeling of it just things not being as good as they could be in our mm. lives. You know, it completely resets that. Yeah. And I just think it, it, the wonderful thing is that it, you break your own pattern yeah. in doing that. And that's often the hardest bit is you're so caught in just the rhythm of how things are that it, you're not even often aware of it, right? That's it. And yeah. it's like, what is going on? And then that's, you know, again, if you have fortunate to. And this is what I think a good community around you can do is lovingly tell you truth. <laughs> and Amen. you go, oh, <laughs> shit, damn it. Yep. But, you know, if that's seen as a gift and not a criticism, which again takes a level of like inner work and, you know, you're a human, you're going to feel some things, of course. Totally. And great. How do you move towards this is a gift? How do I grow from this? And, you know, some of my biggest teachers have been people who have hurt me the most. Mm. And that was a really big shift for me when I went from blame to responsibility to what am I learning? Because I've learned more about myself through this process than not. So interesting. I would say the opposite is true for me. And again, maybe it, it, it's fascinating how this can work for different people. Probably my greatest teachers have been people that I've genuinely felt unconditionally mm. loved me. And we're coming from a place of wanting to see, I think I grew up with a lot of judgment and a mm. lot of fear. Mm. And, and so I was, um, uh, that was not a productive environment for me. And so this whole new capability got unleashed when it was people who wrapped their arms around me. And it was sort of like, I don't care if you do nothing, but if you want to do something, yeah. let me, sh let me tell you this with love. Yeah. And so it was that coming from that place of, I want to see you be all I believe you can be. Yeah. Um, and that's why I'm telling you this truth. And they were mm. hard truths, don't get yeah. me wrong, but because it was coming from this place where I'm like, oh my gosh, this person cares so much for me yeah. that I could accept it in a way where my armour wasn't up. Yeah, um, yeah. And so that was probably yeah, the yeah. flip of what you were saying. I was like, oh, how interesting. It was probably the opposite for me. No, it's interesting because I, I absolutely for me, like I 100% agree um, and I think I would have unlocked so many of my internal superpowers because someone saw something in me that I didn't know I had. And, yep. you know, Jan Owen played a big role for both of us Bless, in that. absolutely. And, and the other side for me is people who have hurt me uh, or I've been hurt by, I've chosen to be hurt by. Um, oh, it's interesting how you phrase that. There you go, right? So mm. it's, it's, you know, someone can do something to me. How I react and respond, what I've learned is up to me. And, yep. that, and that's all I can really control. And, you know, it, 
I didn't think we're going to go here, but you know, it makes me think of Man's Search for Meaning with Viktor Frankl. Yeah, and you what know, a book. what Far a book! Out. Ninety pages, oh, great. Yeah. And you know, there's this quote inside of that that was a few bangers, but um, effectively, really what he talks about is you know, when things got so bad inside Auschwitz that he realized the only thing that they couldn't take from him is how he relates to himself. And that's paraphrased, but you get the idea that he can be in the most torturous of conditions, but his internal relationship with himself, how he chooses to react and respond, is the one thing that he can, they can take everything else from him, but he can't, that is his. And so for me, in experiences where I have been hurt, whether it's, you know, when a parent said something or didn't do something, or, you know, inside of friendships or relationships, me going on my own healing journey and actually going, why did that hurt me so much? What did that shine the light on internally? oh, wow, there is a little boy inside of me that has a fear of abandonment. Wow, I had no idea. Okay, how do I go and be with that part of myself and go and actually talk to it and develop a relationship? And it's like, yeah, I get why you're really scared. Is there anything you need? Okay, cool. And suddenly I'm having this dialogue with myself, giving myself the love I wish I got externally Mm. and I have the agency to give that to myself internally. That has changed my life radically because it's also works on the parts for me anyway and the parts that I've shamed the most and not consciously shamed. But if I'm able to love the parts of myself that I have discussed with or have shamed the most, if I'm able to unconditionally love them, what am I telling myself that I unconditionally love myself? Yeah. I'm like, why am I not teaching kids this? I agree. I was just thinking that. I was like, why, why is it that this is such a journey? And as well, I still feel... Uh, it is more uncommon than common to yeah. meet people who have had an awakening to this material, had access to the guide around it. I think, again, you know, probably both of us, we've been very fortunate to be well-mentored and to have access to the sorts of environments yeah. where this sort of stuff has been prompted in us or been actively we've kind of been steered through it. And I'm forever grateful for that like I I completely agree with you around the profound impact that it's had I would not be the person that I am today had I not had the help to do that deeply introspective self-work and to get okay with myself and learn to love myself Mm. like at quite a fundamental level because you know and I don't know if this is the case for you but even at a fundamental relationship level like we cannot show up in the way that we might want to show up and love others until we can do it for ourselves. Yeah. We are always going to be constrained. It's a bit like how people always say you can only move as fast as the slowest member of your group. You can only love others to the extent to which like you're capable of loving yourself, right? There's always going to be a wall or a block or a barrier. And I agree with you like I wish this was more of a conversation. I feel like as well, I'm interested for your view, but I don't feel like we're comfortable about this as a country. Mm. I don't feel that this is a comfortable part of social dialogue. I certainly don't think it's a comfortable part of masculinity. And so it feels like this is confined to the margins Yeah, very much, where once you find people that are comfortable talking about it, you're like, oh, great, this is awesome, I've got a community, but we're not creating broader space and broader access to this sort of stuff because people think it's, you know, either a little bit hippie yep. to quote you earlier yeah. or something like that. It's it's not it's not commonplace. Well it's a very easy thing to dismiss. Yeah. As you know, true. whether you label it hippie, you label it not for me, or you know, it's just or just warm and fuzzy feelings. But it's easy to dismiss because it'll actually require some internal looking. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's very scary. It's and I can tell from my own experience, looking at my internal basement of that's things terrifying. that have gone on. 
without doubt the most looking at the parts of myself that I thought were unconditionally unlovable and actually sitting in that like weeping feeling it and giving the love to myself internally that has required more courage than any (laughs) keynote talk investor pitch whatever it is in the world that I've done that has required more character than any of that but I had to be the one that had to jump off that ledge internally totally um and yeah, I think I think from an Australian point of view, yeah, we definitely live in you know still of you know two of Australia with white Western colonized Australia. Mm. You know, I often wonder if we start talking about things like this, it means we're going to have to look at a lot more. Oh, I agree. I think that's that's part of the discomfort, right? You know, it may, to use the great earlier, you know, intergenerational trauma and mm. things we've got to lean into and the things we've let happen and the things we haven't actually apologized appropriately for and course corrected well enough and and repaired and healed um i think you're right i think that's the scary part it's a bit like how it's easier to say no than it is to say yes because yes actually requires you to do something do something yeah and everyone's overcommitted yeah they're busy we are we're all busy everything's time poor and the interesting thing is what i found is the faster i move the faster time gets but actually Mm. when i slow down i can't escape my feelings and I'm actually forced somewhat to feel them. And that's why we like to be continually distracted. I that's think. right, and you busy. know. And there's this, yeah, again, in this concept of like healing and, and trauma-related healing, it's it's effectively, you know, it's, it's, it's a big topic, but we have to feel it to heal it. Mm. And in my experience, feeling some of the scariest feelings I've got has been some of the toughest things I've ever done and some of the most liberating and light inducing joyful experience of my entire life so you're doing a lot of work around leadership you always have but yeah I'm, I'm curious how does how does like this you know the sense of what you're seeing even the conversations we've had now how are they playing out in the environments that you're seeing at a leadership level I think a couple of different ways I think where we're seeing people wrestling with a bunch of shifts at the moment one of which is, I think, a, a shift in the way that we work, you know, and that's been uh, absolutely pushed in another dimension and certainly with a, with a new level of pace through the pandemic, that whole idea of, you know, uh, flexibility, the whole notion of whether we need to be physically co-located, you know, that whole dimension is something people are wrestling with from a how do we do culture if it doesn't look the way that it, you know, once did where we turn up the one place and we're there from nine to five and this and that and the other. Um, I think another one is is certainly leadership. You know, we've if we think about the industrial age and sort of the Jack Welsh GE era, it was sort of a lot of hierarchy, typically command and control style of leadership. You pushed your leadership style onto people. People followed suit. Typically a lot of people worked for, you know, not even an industry, a company for the entirety of their career. You know, you could spend 30, 40 years, people would get their gold watches or whatever it was, mm. you know, inside an organisation. So... That's very different now. We've got a much more uh, kind of porous relationship uh, that's much more collaborative and much more empowered. So you've got to pull people. You've got to be able to create a vision that inspires people to want to follow, which is something you're so brilliantly good at doing. You need to be able to live and work with a set of values that people feel are congruent, not only with what is written on the wall, you know, in terms of the the mission and purpose of the organisation and the way that you claim to show up, but certainly with the way that they want to be in the world too. 
And, and so I think that's a big wrestle for a lot of people. It's certainly a big wrestle for an intergenerational wrestle, you know, in the sense of people who got schooled in leadership the old way that are now wrestling with a very different way that younger generations coming through want to be led. And so that's a tension. Certainly the mental health stuff that we're talking about, that's a big tension point. I still meet a lot of leaders who just think our generation are soft. Um, They don't make them how they used to. Type Mm. of phrases come up often or, you know, snowflakes as we often get called and things like that. So there's a big wrestle. Like people know they've got to say the right things about it. It's a little bit like D&I. You know you've got to be saying the right things, but then the reality of how some of the habits don't follow or the progress isn't made accordingly sort of there's a a glaring gap between people who really do this stuff well and people who just talk it. Um, And so I think we're seeing more of that being found out, called out at the moment uh, in this period of time. So it is, it's a really interesting evolution. And I think the other thing is, you know, I don't think uh, a couple of years ago we were talking about psychological safety with the frequency. I feel like we're talking about it now in corporate settings. It's still very new in terms of there might be some awareness of that vocabulary now, but that piece around are we measuring it? Do we know how to do the work on it? Are we building that leadership capability? Are we tracking our progress on it? That's all very, very uh, like immature in its evolution, I think, in business. But I think it's a term that will play a really central role in the next decade of leadership in part because we know it's – absolutely fundamental to actually making inclusion a reality so we, we've talked about you know diversity in the sense of you know diversity of a leadership team diversity of boards we both know and i'm sure your listeners do that it's a long way off what good looks like and as well it's not as multi-dimensional it, you know we talk about that often through a gender lens we're not talking about it culturally we're not talking about it generationally um we're not talking about it from a sexual orientation perspective, whatever way you want to cut diversity, sort of the intersectionality piece is really under-evolved, I think, in that regard. But what we know is that there's getting people around a table and Amy Edmondson, who actually coined the term psychological safety, was sort of the one who did the work on looking at homogenous teams versus teams that are diverse. And in the absence of psychological safety, a homogenous team will outperform a diverse team. You know, when you've got psychological safety there, which basically means... Is it safe to show up as all that I am? Is it safe to take risk? Is it safe to be seen Mm. in this environment? If we can create that sort of condition, a diverse team outperforms a homogenous team every day of the week. Mm. So the performance benefits are massive. And I think that's where we're going to start seeing it shift is, you know, in part, if you want to get the benefit of the diversity you've put around the table, you have to make sure psychological safety is there. If you want the high performance elements of a diverse culture, you have to make sure psychological safety is there. So I think it, that's an interesting part of some of what we've been talking about too, like the space for vulnerability, the yeah. space to be heard and seen, the space to be able to be different and for that to be celebrated mm. and welcome for the unique contribution that is. That is very early stage yeah, of a lot of the corporate landscape. One thing which I find fascinating in what you just shared is particularly fascinating is the well, obviously the main point being there has to be the psychological safety there for the diversity, the diverse team to perform, but largely still many teams are not diverse. No. In, in oh, definitely not. Definitely not. And also, traditionally, a lot of the leaders are leaders of the old guard. And so they're having to relearn their own level. This is my assumption, relearn their own vulnerability, their own authentic leadership style when they've been conditioned for a long time to be way more 
autocratic, I guess. Yeah. And then so it's like, oh, shit, they almost have to go on their own hero's journey of um, their own story and, you know, everything, their unconscious bias, their privilege, everything that comes with understanding an intersectional group in order to be an effective leader. So there's that hurdle to go through Massive too. learning journey. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, listen, Holly, I could talk for hours on this and uh, I'm very conscious of your time. But um, just as we wrap up, I just wanted to just open it up and say, is there anything more you wanted to just share just about, you know, your own story, your lived experience or, or anything else that you just want to kind of wrap this up with? Well, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to be in conversation like this. I think it's so phenomenal that you're creating space for these sorts of conversations because, you know, as we've touched on, they're not too common and I think it's it's critical that we find ways of making this a more frequent part of the way that we talk and the way that we open up and connect with one another and what we try and grapple with because part mm. of it is, right, like neither you or I are professing to have the answers here but we are curious and we're curious in the name of wanting to be better and do better and I think that's a disposition that allows you to be open and to sit in these sorts of tensions and uncertainty and unknown and just go, okay, well, how do we make sense of this? You know, how mm. do we try and piece it together in a different way that might present a new answer or a different approach? Um, and I think, I hope that's one of the things as a generation, we can make a commitment to doing better with each other and doing better in a diverse uh, in diverse settings. So being mindful of that, not just being the people I went to school with, not just being the people I work with, not just being the people who look like me, sound like me, whatever, of being really mindful of how do we try and make sure that there's more cross-pollination of all of that. You know, I just think that's critical to progress um, and it's critical to making sure that we're not just projecting and that's one of the things I'm always really mindful of in the way that we lead is, you know, how do we try and make sure we're surfacing the lived experience of the people who we are seeking to serve? How do we try and make sure this is coming with the the real authenticity of the people that this has to engage or deliver for um, or create a fantastic work environment for? So I think that notion of, you know, not only being mindful of who are the people we surround ourselves with from the sense of who lift me up, who allow me to be the best version that I can be, but who are the people I surround myself with because they help catch my biases, round out my edges, um, help me grow, challenge me. I think that's really important too. And, and they can be two different groups of people. They don't have to overlap and serve both those needs. But I think it's so important for our generation that we build a, a habit, a discipline, whatever you want to call it, of doing both. Yeah, and I think how do we create more training grounds just to be curious about the other lived experience? Totally. You know, it's like, well, what do you think? This is my lived experience. What do you think? And to have that healthy discourse around things that may be politically incorrect in quotation marks, you know, because I think that's where the learning happens. Totally. Because I don't know your lived experience. You don't know mine. I don't know someone who's from, you know, a completely different walk of life. But if I can actually respectfully seek to what you said at the beginning understand and be curious um you know and ask permission to go deeper along the way that is where the goal is and that's what i really you know i, I hope this podcast is it, it democratizes lived experience of people it gives an insight into masculinity the incredible things about masculinity and the things that need and to, the shadow right exactly you can't have the light without the shadow mm -hmm. and, and that that's really the hope so i just want to say you beat me to saying thanks, but I want to say thank you to you. It's been such a pleasure just to spend deep time with you. And, you know, I'm sure we could have kept going for a long time, but <laughs> we kind of, you know, we talked about some really juicy topics that 
that I know will make a significant impact on the people listening. So I want to say thank you for being so generous and also thank you for just who you are in the world. Like we didn't even touch on the impact that you're having, but we got to meet you as a person. And I think that's incredibly special. So I just want to say thank you for everything you're doing. And we need more leaders like you. But we get to have more leaders like you. And, you know, I, I get a lot of inspiration out of your journey. So it's been beautiful to watch. And, um, yeah, I just look forward to supporting from, from the stands as you continue to go on. Right, back at you. Thanks, Simon.